0: Um, um, is it you start? It's my pitch, so that means I start.
1: Okay, I don't know how to do podcasts anymore.
0: <laughs> it's been it's been a it's while. Been years. No. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. My name is Shane. I'm a furniture conservator restorer in Sydney, Australia. Good day. Good middle of the day. Good afternoon. My name is Harry.
1: I'm a furniture maker in north bristol england how are you shane how you doing been a while
0: yeah good it has been way too long (laughs) we almost didn't make it today
1: we've we've been trying to record this episode for a good few weeks and every time we go to record it there's something that means it can't happen whether that is
0: me being disorganized or the traffic is terrible i got sick a couple times and then traffic was terrible and i'm actually really nervous because um it takes me like six hours to edit had a minimum to edit these episodes and um i'm going away for a six-day hike next week so i don't actually know oh, when wow. i'm gonna find time to sit down and do this but so it may... whoever's listening doesn't need to worry about it because <laughs> it, it's already it's out there now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so yeah it may still be a wait from now when we're recording this till the episode comes out but that's fine
0: yeah so we're gonna remember how to do this and and i need to do the pitch this week yes and it is one that i've had in the works for a while there's a couple really annoying things one is that i had this really nicely planned out in my head a few weeks ago (laughs) one of the previous times we were going to do it and now i've started to lose some of those like arguments i had in my head yeah so we'll see how it goes but one of the other annoying things is um i started writing this pitch before getting that book fewer better things by glenn adamson and that book says the things that i was going to say so much better than i do (laughs) and it's I was just so taken aback with how how clearly to the point some of the things that we've talked about are in that book and some of the things I wanted to talk about are in that book. So I'm going to try and present it how I intended to before reading yeah. it, but it's going to be really hard not to pull up some of the arguments from that. That's so we'll funny. see how we go. The topic for this week is kind of a callback to the first episode where I think we were talking about how, you know, you and I had all these conversations at Westin and it was something about this work and, and what we got out of it that was very distinct that we weren't seeing a lot or we weren't hearing discussed. And um, yeah. we were struggling to really define it. And I think this starts to kind of come back and define that a little bit. But the topic for the week is um, what I talk about when I talk about craft. It's, nice. It is trying to define, I guess, craft the way I see it and the way I think about it in this particular work. And the and the reason I want to do this, or one of the catalysts for this, was a. It's just been on my mind. And the more more I listen to the last few people we've interviewed, and a lot of conversations I've had, and a few responses, yeah. the more I've I've had this rattling around in my head. What is it? What is it about craft? Why, how is craft different from other things? How is it? How is it different from making, for instance? What's the difference between craft and making? Um, not because I feel like there needs to be a clarification, but because to me there feels like there's something very distinct yeah. um, that I struggle. And I, the times I notice I struggle with it the most is usually when somebody makes some sort of snide or side comment of some sort. And I think you'll be probably quite familiar with this. You are a quote-unquote traditional <laughs> furniture maker. You draw upon heritage craft. You use a lot of hand tools. You you cherish that aspect of your work. But then someone will come along and go, oh, I see you used a thicknesser on that. You're yeah. not traditional whatever. And it's just like, yeah, I did, but that's not... <sighs> and I think... People get bogged down in whether it's hand tools only or pre-industrial craft or these weird labels about things, I guess. And it's never really... It's not about whether you're using hand tools or power tools. It's not about whether the techniques you're using are pre-industrial or post-industrial. What is important about all of this is something a bit vaguer than that. And I'm going to put forth what I think that is, and I'm going to see what you think about that and there's a few parts to this that we can talk about sure but at its most basic level to me craft the way i talk about it the way i engage in it the way it excites me craft is an intimate relationship between a person and a material and how they manipulate that material to make or create or to gain something but Most importantly, it is a very intimate relationship between a human and a material Mm -hmm. that I think, I don't know, I think that's really important because the further you step away, and one of the reasons why machine tools sometimes don't feel like they are part of craft the same way or a CNC machine or, you know, a laser cutter or whatever, is because you are so far away from that interaction with the material. Mm. Does that make sense? That does make sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think
1: I often would consider it in a similar way. You're absolutely right with the connection to the materials. I think it also goes back a little further than that in the source of those materials. And going back historically as well where that link between the craftsperson and the raw material for example the living tree that link was a lot closer than it is today i think you've become quite disconnected from where these raw materials come from and that is kind of amplified by almost a lack of interaction with the materials because maybe it's going through a cnc machine or whatever it might be yeah and i think that is I think there's a huge disconnect between the the plank of wood on your bench and the, the tree in which it came from. And I th- yeah, like I said, I think that that's that's amplified by those techniques that kind of remove the crafts um the kind of hand crafted element out of it also takes you further away from those materials and maybe it requires a less of an understanding of those materials because kind of the machine will brute force it regardless whereas with a hand tool maybe you can't get away with that you you are forced to understand that material a little more intimately
0: i think that's sometimes what irks me with industrial design or design the way we talked about it a few episodes ago is sometimes it feels like you're moving beyond that intimate relationship and into just kind of going. I've drawn a square on the, like a piece of plywood sheet material, and I can get this machine then to then shape that. And there's no longer a, a, a real connection between you and the material that you're working to create it. And and one of the beautiful things about um, so many crafts is that they are developed out of out of a true understanding of, of the material. So, you know, if you get a basket weaver, for instance, that really came from finding a, a material around you that could be manipulated and so such a way, figuring out the limits of how you could bend it just through human trial and error and interaction with this material and sitting around and doing it. Knitting, for instance, in the same way. But I, I, I want to make a key point here. The drive for that is can be the same in that design element as well. The design the the desire to, to take a material and manipulate it and be creative and come up with certain things is the same. It Just in one case, it's really you engaging with the material, uh, uh, usually a natural material, but not always, in kind of a one-on-one, immediate feedback loop sort of situation, whereas in the other, you're kind of exploring a mechanical or a mechanics or a processed way of finding out how to, to test that material. Yeah. And that's not always post-industrial, I think. Like I was thinking about ripple moldings with this. Oh yeah. Um, for those of you who don't <laughs> know what ripple moldings are, look them up. But ripple moldings is such a machined thing from from way pre-industrial. I think Moxon has a has a description of how to make a ripple molding machine, but it's it's basically you're going to take this stock of timber and you're going to pass it through this device and it's just going to brute force it as you say it's a way through this material until you have a very static pattern and to me that's already stepping away from crap, even though it's pre-industrial and even though you know if you (laughs) use a flam stock it's technically a hand tool but like (laughs) it it really just seems like it's no longer that intimate connection is that yeah how do you, do you th- see it the same i think it makes sense what you're getting at i'm not sure
1: the flamstock is a great example of that i think <laughs> hendrick would Hendrik would would have something to say about it <laughs> i'm sure yeah just to clarify a little flamstock is I, I i i i don't know enough about it but it's a essentially a jig that holds a cutter a static cutter a piece of iron with a kind of molding cut into it and the piece of wood is kind of shoved through with a fair bit of force yeah and kind of ripples its way through and you get that ripple molding which other than kind of hand carving it there's no other way to achieve it which is kind of the beauty of it yeah
0: the the piece of timber kind of sits on a track with a wave yeah. on it, essentially, like a repeating wave. And then the blade, the the basically your your cutter is a big scraper in the right shape. And so when you push the timber through it moves the piece of timber up and down and up and down in a wave pattern, and then that cuts your molding yeah. in onto a piece of it. just Google it. Just like, look a, it up. like a like <laughs> a scratch stock. Kind of, with a anyway anyway (laughs) but you're just kind of you're 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 taking your stock and you're brute forcing it through a machine you are you are brute forcing it through a machine but I think that takes
1: that takes that still takes a good level of understanding of the material and the capabilities of the material and the characteristics of the material whether kind of as opposed to say you were using a spindle molder not to make ripple moldings but to make some sort of moldings coving whatever it is you don't need the same understanding of the material at all, really. You, you. I,
0: I don't know if you need that much more understanding of the material to shove a, a piece of ebony through a ripple moulding machine, to be completely honest. Potentially. I'm not sure. I think it's the same.
1: I think because of the amount of force on it and there's no rotating cutter at high speeds, I think, think Hendrik had lots of pieces of timber that failed. And from that, he learned yeah. which grain patterns work, what density you need
0: because it, it it's like scraping a piece of timber, like a piece of pine scrapes differently to a piece of oak. To me, that would be the one thing about the flamstock, and I really wasn't intending this conversation to end up so focused on flamstock. <laughs> yeah. So the, the flamstock with the flamstock, you actually push push the object through yeah. it. And so for that you have to get a feel for how much pressure you need to apply. And and in that regard, you are getting a feedback response. You you did it, it it got jammed and you're slowly gonna learn and grow through this this process. Whereas the 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 more common ripple molding machine, you actually put the the material on a track and you crank a handle yeah. and it sends it through remember the one we saw in Vienna? Yeah. And that's that's further removed. you you maybe need to know how much that crank works, but you're getting stages and stages away from that interaction, which yeah, of actually uh, brings me to to kind of the second point of this. As as craft in my mind is this intimate relationship between the two, and it is specifically an engagement with materials around us, and it and it is inherently a growth process. Craft is something that you will get better at over time by engaging with it because it is such by its nature an intimate relationship with the material you are learning through doing how how to do it how to cut it how to not get tear out and it's that constant interaction with with what you're doing with the practice and the material that means you you are growing through the process inherently yeah and i think
1: it's something that one of the beautiful things of it that i was drawn to i think was the fact that you can't learn it all through theory like you could be technically very very knowledgeable on how to do woodworking but if you've never done woodworking you you won't develop that understanding of the material whether if you've you maybe you've got the theoretical understanding of the material but until you've kind of taken a blade to it same with absolutely anything i remember working with paper for the first time in the books department and Nyla who was teaching me how to line fabric with Japanese paper her advice was let the wind do it <laughs> and, that, and by that she meant kind of the air carries it and you can kind of manipulate this material in such a way so it lands really flat and nicely and I'm used to heavy lumps of wood yeah so this was kind of like comb-
0: throwing a bed sheet over the bed and-
1: yeah kind of similar thing and, and like I knew what she was getting at but without that understanding of how that material moves and how to interact with it you just can't learn that yeah. without doing it and doing it wrong really to be honest yeah. and which is the same as most things you you kind of you have to do the cock-ups to figure out how that material how to to act with that material to get it to do what you want to kind of tame it if you like and yeah so it's it's an interesting one and i i think i think i i like that part of craft a lot the fact that it it can't be mastered without doing there has to be an element of practice and time and trial and error to an extent as well because there's so many different ways to do absolutely anything and there's and there's no right way to do a specific process so maybe it it takes that trial and error to see what works for me in my workshop with my tools with my timber and that can't necessarily just be learnt from a book or from from reading articles it it's there's such a kind of inherent tactile tactile trial and error process to get good at working with these raw materials i think it's just just lovely you can't you can't not
0: work with your hands to be good at it yeah. As, as we've said before, there is a certain conceptual element and the more you can understand properly what you're doing, the, the better you will be able to be at it. Sharpening episode is a good example of that. Yeah. But there is so much of it that really is is doing and engaging and, and you are learning about the material you're working and the tools you're using and the process. And you're learning about how your hands and your body moves every single time you do it, which I think is incredible. I've been doing so much polishing in the last year, of French polishing, and I'm I'm feel like I'm getting better at it, and I'm quite happy with it now. And it used to frustrate me earlier on because I wanted someone to tell me what the process was. Like, okay, what is French, what is the step? How how quickly am I supposed to be? How much pressure am I applying here? And and I have come to kind of realize that that can't be defined in some regards. And the best example I can think of for this. Is um is basketball like to me? It's like <laughs> right. if you ask me to throw a basketball into a hoop, or you go to a professional basketball player and you ask them to throw a bas like how do I do this? How much pressure? Oh, the wind is blowing. How do I compensate for that? Well, you don't. You just shoot a lot of hoops, and you you just look at the basket and you know kind of roughly how you're supposed to hold it, but you're you're gonna slowly learn how to compensate for how much pressure to apply where, depending on what your distance is. I don't think you can actually like sit down and write out, oh, if I'm standing over here, I need to be putting this much pressure with these fingers it's just something that through the process of doing it a lot you work that out somewhere in your head yeah (laughs) i guess no absolutely one of the one of the things i'm really coming to love about polishing and it was told to me loads of times before every for every person they do it differently and i think it's really because through that trial and error process and as i'm going i'm now starting to go okay no this this is starting to feel like i'm gonna burn through or i'm gonna pull the shellac off yeah i can't tell and i'm not 100 percent certain but i'm now gonna add oil no this time i'm gonna add more alcohol not always necessarily certain but i'm figuring that out yeah and it is it is because part of my my hand is feeling the drag resistance it's feeling how much liquid is in that pad and it's making all of these kind of responses to these materials and to me that's that's why French polishing is a craft it is because of those things it's it is that again intimate relationship between me and that material in a process that that inherently I will learn more about that material through trial and error feedback and I will get better at it hopefully over time by doing it over and over and over again I think I think
1: French polishing is a really good example of that and although I don't do it anywhere near as often as you do. And I, I'm sure now your experience is far beyond mine with French polishing. But I, there was a time at West Dean where I was doing a fair bit of it. And I, I've mm-hmm. got multiple books going through the process of French polishing a piece of wood. And I've read them all so many times, so many times to try and figure out what I was doing wrong. Or like reading something about, or oh, you should feel this at this point and like just expecting it to work like I, I quite often think of you with the the sweeping the floor example um yeah yeah just kind of following a, a basic set of instructions and, and expecting to get perfect results and i remember speaking to, yeah. to loads of people speaking to the musical instruments guys because they french polish the guitars and um uh, loads of people people that refinish pianos and Everyone gives you a slightly different definition. And when it really clicked, was just because I had a job where I needed to do lots of French polishing. And I had built a base of knowledge of the materials and kind of the steps in the process that I know I vaguely have to follow. Although it varies from every single book and person I've I've spoke to. But it's really when I was forced to just put the time in and like this needs to be french polished so you haven't really got a choice you just have to get good at it and you just have to understand the material mm-hmm. yeah you just have to understand the material and for me it was that kind of pressure that made it click for me and i i never got to a point where i was very confident that i could reliably in a in a sensible amount of time polish or repolish a surface but I got to a yeah. point where I know if I, if I had enough time that I could do it, because I was getting to the point where I was understanding the material and its characteristics and where it's quite delicate, where you have to be quite precise. And then there's some areas where you don't have to be precise. You can kind of, you can kind of just yeah. mess around with it a, bit, a little bit. But it's, it's only from time it's something that I found recently as well I bought a chainsaw a few, <laughs> a few months ago yeah. last year at some point and I read lots of things about using chainsaws because I was a little bit scared of it and I've been using it chopping up firewood and falling trees at, at the field and and now you just understand the tool it, and, and you understand the timber because I've done it. Like I I've, I've felt it kick back a little bit. So like instantly mm-hmm. in your brain that like checks a box like, oh, right, in this situation, don't do that. So, and it's completely subconscious. I'm yeah. not I'm not writing that down. I'm not thinking about it. But I know next time I got the chainsaw running, I'm in that same position. I'm not going to do that that does a thing that's scary and it and i think it's it's the same with any tool and almost any process whether it's whether it's woodworking or or whatever other craft it might be it's learning how those tools interact with those materials and kind of taming it it's it's getting to a point where it's predictable and if something goes wrong i think you're really starting to 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 get skilled when something's going wrong, and you know why it's gone wrong, and you know what to do differently to make it right. I think that's yeah. the, that's the point where it's kind of it, that's where the click happens. The funny,
0: the the kind of funny thing is a bunch of my friends now have have young children. Luke's Luke's got a two month old, and yeah. and you watch the the kids. In their, they don't really know much intellectually, obviously, and they're not (laughs) speaking language, but you can watch them engage in that same process of like moving around their hands and like trying to move across the room and, and just like, oh no, I hit a thing. Uh," (laughs) And, and they're, they're really bad at it. That's terrible, suck at everything but you can still you can see that very human way of engaging and interacting (laughs) and getting feedback and and adjusting and i do think that there's something wonderful about continuing that process it feels very it feels like it's a really satisfying way of learning just that doing and getting feedback and responding to it evolving i think anyway trial and error isn't it Mm. but i'm much better at it than stupid babies they're terrible Terrible at French polishing, Christ. They're awful at French polishing. Trying to eat everything. Fuck's sake. (laughs) Never employ a baby. No. I don't think it's legal either, so don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, and I kind of want to go back to why I want to make this argument, is is I do think that this aspect of it is more important than whether it's hand tools or whether it's design or whether it's whatever. The, the, what I love about this field, what I want to be engaging with, are these aspects, and to me they are the same aspects that make a sports person uh, amazing, or sports in general really appealing, or playing a musical instrument really appealing, is it's it's you getting good at this process and it's a person engaging with something in a skill that that can't just be defined perfectly, and for me, that's what I love about this line of work, yeah, and why I'm really excited to be doing more polishing and why I really have been loving doing it because it is an aspect of the work that that has to be has to you have to go through this process to do it um, and as long as I am polishing, I feel like I will always be immersed in that that learning process yeah do you would you would you agree that that's a, a good way of separating out kind of some of the things that we're talking about from some of the definitions of hand tool versus machine tool? Because yeah. the hand tool machine tool thing kind of bugs me.
1: It bugs me as well because I think I used to kind of give a fuck about it more in yeah. many ways. For example, I had a message the other day on Instagram saying, oh, it feels a little like you're losing your way I've just bought a big fat bandsaw and an extractor and all of that. And I had a message saying, oh, this doesn't look like kind of ha- Harry's usual work. It's a bit out of character to be invested in machinery for someone that's so passionate uh-huh. and, and talks so often about the use of hand tools and how I use them in my work. Yeah. And and it's, I, and I just, I think it's, it's ridiculous. It, I'm I'm not saying the use of electricity is terrible like it's, it's uh, that's that's not it that's <laughs> like it's not the argument of hand tools versus machinery if i feel like i am kind of doing my craft justice in a way and and the material do doing the material justice as well it's that it's like i said that it's not losing that connection to the material like i used the bandsaw for cutting doing the kind of rough dimensioning work because i don't want to be rip ripping and re-sawing yeah and trying, re-sawing, to get the, um, exactly. and trying to get yeah. the most out of a board and that kind of thing which i i have been known to do it and i i'm sure i'll do it again ripping stuff by hand i i do enjoy uh-huh. doing it and i find great satisfaction in the fact that i have the skills to do it it doesn't mean I feel like I have to do it with the processes that I've developed and kind of my the process that work for me not not that I've come up with <laughs> I've not invented woodworking tools but yeah with those processes the machines like there's a reason that machines have been developed be, because they 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 make your life easier but it's it's when the kind of the human is so far disconnected from that material to the point where you don't have to understand wood or you don't have to yeah have to know the characteristics of not even just wood but that particular board it's at that point where i think there's an issue and it and it kind of starts to move away from craft yeah you can have a machine and power tool based process and still be crafting stuff still be doing craft i think it's more about your approach to the material and how you're interacting with the material and and your choices in in how you how you use those materials that's for me where where the craft is, not in my exact choice of tool. I think that's absurd.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot that can be done on a bandsaw and a table saw, and even with a domino to make some some beautiful pieces but that still involve you personally with that material. I, I love using a table saw, I'm not going to lie. I really really enjoy it. And I I love the feeling of pushing the timber through and lining that up and measuring that out by eye and picking the timber and, and the way I'm going to cut it and get that out of the board. It's it's an enjoyable process that I feel has a, a lot of feedback in it as well. Uh, sometimes more so than than trying to resaw something by hand if I'm completely honest yeah because i'm paying way more attention to that interaction like to the material and what's happening than just like how tired my arm is getting (laughs) um and i i yeah i think it's a better definition i think it's a better definition or a better way at least for for what matters to me than trying to get bogged down in whether or not it's pre-industrial or whether it's you know machines versus or modern materials or whatever um Modern materials bug me, like MDF, partially because MDF has very little longevity to it, but also because the goals of those materials are to not be timber. The de- the quote unquote defects of wood that it moves that it has grain. These materials have been manufactured to not be that, so that you don't have to think about that material. MDF operates in every way exactly the same. It, it it's it's like someone was using a bunch of machines and going this this process of being removed works great. The fault is that the material has variation in it. So let's create new material that has no variation in it, yeah. and then and we don't have to think about it at all. To me that, apart from the environmental and the lack of longevity, yeah. that really grates against everything I engage in this process for, which is definitely to be really connecting with, with the world around me on a physical level, and to understand it more, and to learn about it, and, and to feel more connected. It's
1: definitely, I think it's think with a if your process and your preference is a machine and power tool heavy heavy way of doing it i think that's fine but i think there's still to kind of for it to still in my eyes be considered craft there still needs to be that understanding of of the hand tool process of a kind of if i cannot do this on a table saw because it's such a specific little thing that i gotta do I kind of I I often feel although like having a big bandsaw opens up a huge amount of things that I can do because I can buy big timber I can resource stuff myself I could even put a put a log through it if I like but in many ways using the machines and the power tools as kind of my primary process I think restricts me more than it helps me. Because I I'm shackled to the restrictions of of that machine. My bandsaw, the table bed goes to 45 degrees and no further to the left. So everything I make yeah. is gonna is gonna be to that. But with a hand plane, I I I couldn't care less what the angle is, but I can do whatever angle I like. And it's something that Paul Sellers talks yeah. a lot about in his book. Is kind of the freedom that hand tools give you. Often I think it's considered the other way you're restricted by your hand tools because of your lack of power which is kind of where my balance of machines and hand tools come from if i need if i need the power because to do it like physically myself is ridiculous like resawing a big board then the bandsaw is a fantastic help that that's not restricting me in any way it it then uh, it's kind of after that stage for me that the machines would come restrictive, and and the freedom of hand tools is of great benefit to me. And I think you end up with different work, with different a different feeling to it if you're more informed yeah. with with those with those tools.
0: It's in a- every odd one. tool in some way gives gives you an ability or skill. Like you always say, you know, it's every tool an, a different tool in your tool belt gives you a different capacity yeah. you know if you only have chisels you can't put screws in because you'll blunt your chisels <laughs> you know it, it's machine tools give you certain aspects handles give you certain aspects it's not really important necessarily the tool to me I mean though I wouldn't dismiss any of them unless that tool brings me away from why I want to be engaging with what I'm engaging with which to me is is just, uh, at the moment the CNC machine but also at the same time, there are things with the CNC machine that potentially excite me, and there are ways that I could see getting into that. The more I understand it, and then the more I felt like I was actually starting to engage with those materials intimately. Yeah. But not when I first see it, because to me it seems like such a. It's I'll stand over here. Like it almost seems like outsourcing it to someone else i've come up with a design i'm going to outsource it over to a warehouse over there i don't even have to be in the same room when it happens and that's that's not crafting that's 100 percent design with with no craft element which isn't to say that's inherently a bad thing it's just not what i'm it's just a different thing for yeah it's a different thing it's not
1: the same thing and and we're similar in the way that i'm less interested in that I think you. I think you feel yeah. the same way. It's yeah that that approach to it, which I wouldn't necessarily consider craft. I, yeah, I just that's not that's not what I want to do. For so for a lot of people, that is that is interesting and that feels like it opens up a lot of res- lot of opportunities and a lot of creativity and that's fine. But yeah, it's not necessarily what I would be interested in doing by any means. I, I actually went to see an artist this week who. He worked with Banksy a lot, actually. He likes to, seem to be a a big claim to fame and and does a lot of art himself. He's written books on Banksy and all of that. And and I I went to have a chat. I went to their studio, huge, amazing studio. They do a lot of screen printing. They've just got a CNC machine and they're getting into making furniture. And that's why they got me and they wanted to, they wanted to start making furniture, but they didn't really have anyone that knew anything about making furniture. So I thought, fine, go, go and have a chat. Great. And, and I wasn't kind of expecting a lot to come of it. I wasn't looking for a job or anything. I just wanted to to have a chat. And it was really interesting. And they were very, they were great people. And they were really excited about what they were doing, which which I love to see almost more than anything. Just people passionate about their stuff. That's incredible. I love it. But straight away, I knew it wasn't for me. It was a lot of like cool, like coloured MDF. CNC cut, resin poured over the top. Right, I want that to be the uh, top of a coffee table. Harry, can you make me the rest of the coffee table? That's what they were looking for. For me, that isn't craft, and they didn't see it as craft either. And that's why I, I, I kind of, I was there for quite a while, and I had to, at the end, just kind of say, thanks for the opportunity, and I can see it is a great opportunity i'm not the right person for this it's not that i don't care about the work they want to do but it's just yeah they hold their values very differently to me i'm interested in different yeah. things maybe if we could work together and we'd both be pleased but we don't really deep down give a shit about the what the other person gives a shit about they are interested in the art and making yeah. an art piece <laughs> i i <laughs> yeah i felt like it y- 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 i i am the wrong person for this entirely you need someone that will machine you furniture to to kind of display your art essentially and and that was a that was a good example of where that that line you kind of cross it and it doesn't feel any any more like craft
0: and i don't think a lot of people realize this minor variation and how important it is and again it's not to say something's right or wrong and i actually i think you and i are getting better at not immediately hating people for not <laughs> doing it the way that we want it to be done. Um, I, I know that previously we, we were just like, everyone else is wrong, but we don't know why we're right. You end up <laughs> you end
1: up becoming quite bitter and cynical quite quickly. <laughs> yeah. Which is not the way I want to be in any way.
0: No, I, but what I I do want is I do want to, to help define these ideas of what it is that I, I do get excited about, so that when I talk to people about them, it, it doesn't devolve into hand tools or, or something along that line, because there's something beautiful about this. It's The, the essence of this, this show, what's, what's beautiful about craft is the way you learn about the world and the materials around you through interacting and making and doing stuff, which, which is great. I do I do want to jump on one more aspect of this though which I've been thinking about and does come from Glenn's book which I I was reading it I was like that's so interesting because the There's an outcome to this. The fact that we want to be involved in a process that is inherently human in your interaction with the material and is inherently something that you will be bad at to start with and you will get better at over time is that we are almost instinctively engaging in in an activity that we won't get perfect. There's a little bit of risk involved in it, which is important. So in Glenn's book, he talks about... Theories by uh, David Pi. I don't know if it's David, but Pi is definitely the last name. And Pi has has these statements of workmanship of certainty and workmanship of risk. Right. And in uh, Glenn's book, he actually lays this out really nice. he talks about material intelligence, which is a whole other concept, which I absolutely love. But say you're gonna um, you go up to someone with a piece of paper and you say, make this into two perfectly sized pieces of paper. Now you're first, you can rip it with your bare hands, but there's a huge amount of risk there that you're gonna actually be able to rip it perfectly in half. And then you can start to use, you know, folding the paper in half to get it in half. That's using a little bit of your knowledge, weakening the paper along that break. That gives you a bit more certainty. You know, you still, it could tear off in the wrong way, which I know with sandpaper all the time, I almost always fail. Um, then you can like put a ruler down on it. You could start to use scissors or knives or whatever and you slowly start to bring in implements that increase your certainty yeah until you get to a point where you basically put it in a machine that will always cut it at the right size essentially by the nature of what we do or what we are engaged like that learning process that's something that you will get better at it is important but it is not perfect certainty That there is always a a certain level of risk involved the aspect of certainty we're working for is that we ourselves get better at the task through practice is our way of achieving certainty rather than trying to find a mechanical way yeah does that make sense yeah that makes a lot of sense
1: i really like that i really like that i think it's yeah i think that is quite a difficult concept to accept to yeah to kind of accept as a business
0: but Mm. i love it yeah that was going to be kind of my follow-up on that as well yeah so
1: like i've got a job coming up it's a huge two and a half meter long dresser piece with a display unit on top drawers everywhere little cabinets complicated huge made of walnut expensive timber And because of my processes and my my preferences of tools and and technique, joinery and all of that, there's a fairly high level of risk that I cock up something or something isn't perfect. And I've been thinking about it a lot as I'm just coming up to starting this job. I got the timber yesterday. And, but I, I, after talking to the client yesterday, I went to meet the client and. After talking to him I walked away much more excited about the job because I knew he appreciated that risk in some way didn't use those words yeah um but it, it's kind of it's an appreciation for the fact that this is made with human hands and not made by mm-hmm. a machine because with those machines of course there's still risk you cock it up but it's a it's a different risk that risk is user error in i've cut it on in the wrong place or i've cut it short whatever it is but the machine Mm -hmm. is still going to do what you asked it to do the machine is unless it's set up incorrectly or something's wrong the machine still runs the blade around at a certain speed and does the job whereas with a hand tool orientated process that risk is different maybe yes it's still user error but that risk is maybe a lack of accuracy or lack of care in a certain place or what, whatever it might be but I think after a certain level of practice obviously that risk I think does get reduced and reduced and reduced until you're confident to take on a job such as this dresser I think yeah. 12 months ago I'd have probably passed it because it's a scary job because that risk felt too high yeah. it's a confidence in your practice that kind of leads to that but yeah I think it I think it's a really important thing and I think it it does hold such value that risk and those imperfections that are always there regardless of how pretty the perfectly lit instagram photo is there are always (laughs) that 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 risk that and those imperfections that have come from the use of a tool which is being powered by a human with with squidgy hands like there's gonna be errors there will always be errors yeah um and however small they are, they to to the right audience with the kind of appreciation I was talking about with the client I just met, they add a huge amount of value. Yeah. They really do.
0: It's I, I thought about it a lot when we were in Japan and trying to cut those joineries. Yeah. And and the, the ultimate goal is to have perfect to the line cuts. Absolutely. Flat but surfaces. You're, yeah. But the, the tool to to do that is the person. And the person just needs to, to get better at it enough that they can achieve that. And that's really important. So that that's how we, we work towards certainty is through practice and that these processes become practice-based, which means that the practitioner can have a lot of pride in what they do and that if you understand it, much like watching, you know, again, if I go back to sports or, or music as a great example, we love watching incredible like sports people or, you know, watching the Olympics or, or incredible musicians play instruments. Because we know there's a human there doing that. And it's a challenging thing and yeah. that not everyone can do it. If you just had a machine play a violin up on stage, it, it would be fascinating to watch. <laughs> but that's not why you go to the orchestra to see necessarily a live performance by humans playing instruments. Yeah. And, and I... I, to what you said before, though, from a business perspective, that's interesting because that's difficult to market because basically what you're saying to your clientele is the product you're getting is not necessarily going to be perfect. It theoretically could be perfectly made by a machine, but I refuse to do that. And I want you to value and that's a the good fact thing. that I am refusing to do that. <laughs> that's a good
1: thing and you will pay more for it. I promise. Christ. Yeah. It's not an easy thing to market, and I'm I, I I am aware. I am very fortunate to find the clients I have to an, to an extent. I've I've been in the right place at the right time and, and, and done the work prior to finding the clients. Anyway, it does still feel lucky that most of the people I work for they do do hold value in that, and they see the difference between. A mass-produced piece of furniture that is, in, in inverted commas, perfect, and a piece of furniture that I would make, and, and they appreciate those values in the in the risk, like like the the machine, the, the machine playing the violin on stage, that that machine, mm-hmm. if all is working right, will play exactly the same piece of music every single time on demand.
0: And man, it would be a cool machine, especially if it was. It would be awesome. Extremely it, mechanical. It would be really
1: cool. It's like that marble machine. I don't know if you've seen that. Hendrik was obsessed with it. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like that kind of thing. If everything's working right, it produces the same amount of music, the same piece of music every single time. I I will never reproduce the same thing, even if I'm working to the same designs with timber from the same tree. They will never, they will never be the same because it is there's always human error in it because sometimes I'm more tired. So I will maybe not sharpen my chisels often enough and something will, will be different to that. It's, it's just getting to a point yeah. where the level of error is small enough that it can be accepted by the client, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it's tricky,
0: but it, it's an inherent aspect of what we think is important in this work that you are almost certainly guaranteeing <laughs> to your client that it's not going to be perfect. Yeah, I, and I think
1: that, but I think that that's really- That's not the right perfect's not the right word. No, no, but I think, it comes, I think it comes back to what we try and do with a lot of what we spend our time doing, and this podcast itself as well, is kind of spreading that awareness and having those conversations, so there are more and more people in the world that do appreciate that, that difference between a mass-produced thing and a handcrafted thing that's kind of that's the point of this crafted world and us doing the the instagrams and talking to all these people and teaching and doing all of that for me if i could if i could make some more people appreciate that not so they buy more shit off me that's not important (laughs) but but because the world becomes a nicer place to be people appreciate the things around them and what's gone into it rather than i bought this from this shop because it was cheap or because it was convenient I could get it today, which I understand is is, is an ideal world that that's never gonna exist, that I want to exist. But I think that's I think it's a really nice link to the whole point of a lot of what
0: we do. Or, you know, just so that I never have to hear someone say, Oh, why don't you just use X <laughs> and then get really angry and bitter <laughs> That'll never stop. If I never you'll, had to deal never, with that again, that'd be great. You'd never not get that. <laughs> You just have bet. <laughs> the nice thing about the nice thing about restoration conservation is that your clientele almost always, if you're you're dealing in a certain realm or you pitch yourself a certain way, they almost always have a certain respect for the handmade and the the imperfection, um, or the the fact that you know the piece they have was was crafted with a specific skill involved and that they're coming to you in the hopes that you can potentially replicate that same skill is is really what I one of the things I love about this field apart from you know the fact that I'm keeping stuff around and maintaining some of these skills is that that there is a a respect for that in, built in yeah. Yeah, to I looking think, after think, heritage pieces. I think you're right.
1: I think if they've if they're at the point where they've come to you to do restoration work on a piece, then that that
0: understanding and appreciation is already there on the whole. Yeah, yeah. You you can almost always talk with a client about about their piece and the and just kind of go, wow, it's amazing how they did this sort of thing and entirely, you know, by hand in a small shop. They go, yeah, it's really cool. It's one of the things I love about. You know, this it's amazing, that kind of skill and whatever. And I'll probably have hyperbolic impressions of what it actually takes to do it. Yeah. But it's it's there. It's it's respected to a certain degree, which is really nice. Definitely. Um, so that's my theory. That's my theory about this. I've been thinking about it a lot. And I, I've felt a lot better since kind of wrapping my head around that. I felt a lot better with some of my own love for certain machine processes. Yeah. I felt a lot better about You know kind of engaging with processes and talking to people who are really excited about you know getting a router cutter in and honing it and i'm just kind of seeing it now in a perspective of you're engaging with your your tool and you're engaging with your material in a very specific way and it's beautiful the way you do it um and it's freed me in a lot of ways to to have more respect for more approaches which is i'm really satisfied with i still feel like i'm early on well because i am
1: in this Kind of adventure into craft of all types as well, not just woodworking. I feel like I'm early on, but yeah. I feel like there's such a, a a better tolerance isn't the right word, but appreciation from myself into into those different processes that maybe don't interest me to do myself, but finding the craft within those and kind of it's, it doesn't all have to be done in a in a perfect way but there's still there's still there's there's value to be found in it and just the fact you're you're making stuff or the fact you're fixing stuff um in many ways is kind of almost more important than the exact way you're doing it it's just the fact you're doing it to begin with yeah. that's great i love that i'm conscious of running uh running too long as well should we do a a real quick what have you been up to yeah what have you been up to <laughs> Well, since the last time we recorded, two oh. months ago. Yeah, um, the top line. <laughs> 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 We're going to be here all day otherwise.
0: Uh, I just put in a fellowship application yesterday for nice. um, for my journeyman year next year. That's so exciting. That's potentially $10,000 I'm very excited about. Nice. Um, actually, no, I'm not excited. I'm terrified. Well, yeah, rightly so. Um, but, but the th- trip I'm excited yeah, about. Yeah. And that's starting to come together, but I'm not making any more plans on it until I hear back on this fellowship, because if the fellowship comes in, then it's, it is absolutely happening, and I will start to solidify things and book you know places, prov- yeah. providing I can get out of the country by the end of the year. Yeah. Um, so that's moving forward in a realistic way, which is really exciting. I've been doing a lot more polishing, yes. uh, and I'm really feeling like I'm getting so much better at it, I'm getting a little bit better at color work but it's been a lot of the same sorts of objects for, for a little while now. Probably the most exciting thing in my world is that Luke is working at ICS with me now. He just started there in the furniture shop in a technician role. Luke um uh, Woodstone Rag and Bone on Instagram and Mr. Fixit on Gardening Australia. <laughs> uh he used to work with me at the Bower and he took my job over at the Bower when I went to West Thien. Um he's just an awesome awesome guy and um, i'm really really excited to have him up at, at the ics workshop now have you done anything no no not much just been about mainly so so though your workshops pretty much i've well it's ready to start doing I've stuff called it,
1: now. i've called it good for now for now i was very hesitant to start work too soon because i knew mm-hmm. there'd be certain things i wouldn't get around to doing if i did that and i've seen it happen people setting up workshop and they leave like bare insulation on the last wall and start work and then two years later that wall's still not finished and that's just not where i want to be i i I want this space to be somewhere that i'd love to spend time and i think for it to be that space it it needs to be a certain level of nice niceties that aren't necessary in some (laughs) meanings of the word but they are important to me to get done And i think i've got most of those done so i've this week i've started work i've got a couple tea caddies to make which is a nice gentle introduction to getting back into the making Nice few small jobs and then been doing a lot of planning of teaching the maker's shed is opening on may 17th and it now looks like i'll be taking on the monday evening course as well as the tuesday and the tuesday evening course every week as well as running my sharpening and tool maintenance weekend courses throughout the year, as well as a traditional finishing course on the weekends. So lots to be planned. Um, I'm also meeting with a student that's potentially interested in one-on-one tutoring in my workshop at the end of this month. Um, so it's, it's all happening. There's been a lot of planning and a lot of sitting behind a desk and, and not doing woodworking, which is kind of, it got a little bit much for a while and I got a little bit overwhelmed with it but kind of getting set up again sharpening my tools getting gently back into it has really kind of got me out of that and I'm yeah feeling good about it I'm excited to get into the teaching I'm gonna be running a trial weekend for the sharpening and tool care course so I'll be running the weekend course in my workshop before it for volunteer students three or four five students um, to kind of test how it works I I mean I'm not a teacher to be honest I'm excited to do teaching but I've relatively Mm. little experience actually doing it so I think running this trial weekend in my workshop in a space where I'm quite comfortable would be a nice way to kind of build my confidence as well for students that aren't paying so it doesn't matter too much if it's if I cock up um <laughs> so that's exciting that should be happening on the 30th of may that trial weekend should be happening on the 30th of may so i am looking for one or two students if anyone is local to me and about on that weekend send me a message you might be able to come along so that would be, be really nice cool. yeah i'm looking forward to it so i will put out a message on instagram soon once if once that date is kind of fixed yeah i, I popped back to west dean yesterday which was a lovely thing Uh, I went and saw Norbert, our tutor, and went and saw a couple of clients and picked up lots of timber. Ended up being a really long day. We didn't get back till one o'clock in the morning because we were chatting to various people Jeez. for so long and then it was a long drive home but fortunately I had my brother with me so it wasn't too bad yeah so yeah has been busy and I'm looking forward to it getting to a point where everything gets a bit more predictable and kind of consistent I can get into a better routine with the regular teaching and figuring out how that kind of weaves in between me making stuff and Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Things are starting to open back up as well. You can sit in a pub garden now and you can get a haircut now. So it's feeling good, but
0: yeah, scary
1: time, but exciting
0: time. Yeah, but it's all good. Well, I'm hoping to be there. Um, What month is it now? We're in April. We are end of April. But if all goes well this time next year, I'll be in in uh, the Netherlands. Nice. And then a few months after that, I will be in in your country my country wow yeah and i i listed you as one of the workshops i i hope to work with on my fellowship application
1: oh really so
0: look forward to that oh
1: nice (laughs) we can record a a podcast for the first time
0: yeah well that's so that's something i was really really hoping to do is that potentially each place i go we can interview the people i'm working with for the show as we go along that would be be a lot of fun (laughs)
1: Um, Do you want to say a little bit about where we are with season one and that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, so this episode kind of is the end of season one. I know we never ever claimed that we had seasons and (laughs) we didn't think we did until this episode. Um, But when I was thinking about it and thinking about how this, this episode kind of wrapped up the concepts from the first episode, sort of, it seems like this is a pretty good natural place to to call season one over so thank you for listening to season one yeah season two is in the works and i I, we've got quite a few guests on board yeah quite a few interesting topics more than i thought when we started this that that we would have yeah we're looking into doing some logo and and website redesign and so all that will hopefully come along when when Season two, quote unquote, yeah, uh, begins. But but yeah, that's that's a wrap on season one of this crafted. Well, film.
1: hey, it shouldn't mean too much of a gap. Probably no more than the gap between this one and the last episode, to be honest. <laughs> so it's not like we're going yeah. away for a year. Then season two comes. <laughs> it's probably going to come sooner than this episode did. But yeah, look forward to it. We got some got some really exciting guests. I'm I'm excited to speak to and see where it goes. Really, we should get t-shirts, Shane.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's produce some wasteful merchandise. There's not enough um, T-shirts in the world. Anyway, yeah, if you have ideas of things you'd like us to, to dig down into, or people you'd like us to try and talk definitely. to, or if you want to try and talk to us, definitely reach out. Send us a message. Um, send us a message on
1: Instagram, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, any ideas, topics. and Or if you want to come on the podcast, whoever you are, listener, um, let us know. Yeah. Let us know. But... Anyway, unless, unless anything else, thank you for listening, guys. Thank you for listening to season one. Thank you. I've been really enjoying it. It's something we've wanted to do for probably since quite after, quite soon after we met and this exciting, It's kind of coming together. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Nice one. All right, I'm going to go to bed now.
1: You're going to go to bed. <laughs> I'm going to move these big lumps of wood around. Sweet. Nice one. Good night, Harry. See you later. Cheers, guys. See ya. <laughs>